Welcome to the podcast of Harvest Baptist Church in Harvest, Alabama. We invite you into our sanctuary as we dive into God's Word with our pastor, Dr. Al Peringer. Well, tonight I want to look in Daniel chapter 7, as we've been doing a, a deep dive uh, in, into Daniel. Now, something that often weighs heavy on our minds is what is the government going to look like in the future? You know, we were, we're concerned about what our government will be like. If the government is good, we're concerned, well, what about what's going to happen in the near future? Will someone or, or something that take over that, that does us wrong? Or if, we're, if, we, if the government is not so good, you know, we wonder, is things going to get better in the future? And, you know, we, we in, in the United States, we wonder about that. This year is a midterm election year. And, uh, you know, we, every two years we're wondering, okay, who is going to take over? Who's, what party is going to take over? What political party is going to win the different elections? And, and so government is, is often on our minds. Well, government was also on the mind of, of Daniel. Daniel was wondering something similar because of what happened to the people uh, of Israel. The people of Israel were still in captivity at the point of Daniel 7, and I'll explain how and, and why. And, and so here we are in Daniel 7, and Daniel is wondering about the world powers. What world power would be in control, and what would that mean for the Jews? Well, God, uh, in his sovereign grace, decided to give Daniel a glimpse of what was going to happen over the next several centuries in that part of the world. And some folks think it also gives a glimpse of the end times. Now, we're, we've come to a point in the book of Daniel where a little bit of a shift happens. The first, the first six chapters of Daniel were a little bit more like narrative. It told what uh, happened to Daniel and his three friends, how they navigated living and working and worshiping in the midst of a pagan nation. It talks about how they were taken cap into captivity as teenagers by Nebuchadnezzar. And, you know, chapter 6 talks about how Daniel was serving under Darius the Mede. And Daniel was, by that time, was in uh, his, his 80s. But now the rest of the book talks about visions that God had given Daniel somewhere during that time, at various times in his life. Um, because from here, the book isn't necessarily in chronological order. Because at the end of chapter 6, the Medo-Persian Empire had taken over. Darius the Mede, or Darius, however you want to pronounce it, uh, he was in charge in, in Babylon. But now we're going to go backwards in time to when the Babylonian king, Belshazzar, uh, co-regent, uh, was king in, in Bab Babylon. And so we're going to find that Daniel, he's often wondering and praying about his people. He gets a glimpse of what is in store. And, and so this part of the book of Daniel is prophetic. And it's written in a certain literary style that is called the apocalyptic style. It's apocalyptic literature. Now the word apocalypse means revelation or unveiling. That's why the last book of the Bible is sometimes called the revelation. Sometimes it's called the apocalypse. The word apocalypse just means unveiling. A revelation. And it, it, it's where God reveals, 
unveils, things that are going to happen uh, in the future. It often contains visions that are very, very symbolic. I mean, it is highly symbolic. And it often has a heavenly mediator that explains some of the visions to the recipient. As one author described this kind of literature, and it's important to understand this kind of literature if you're going to understand the book of Daniel, but then also if you're going to understand the book of Revelation, which I know everyone has a great grasp of Revelation. We're all still working on that one, aren't we? But this is how this type of literature is uh, described. It is a genre of biblical writing that reveals God's actions and coming judgment in symbolic language. The transition from prophecy and apocalyptic is characterized by an increased use of symbolism and an increased use of heavenly mediators explaining the vision. The apocalyptic genre contains a revelation within a narrative framework. The revelation is given to a human being by an otherworldly mediator who unveils a supernatural reality along with the means by which humanity can become a part of it. So, for example, I mean, if you look at the beginning of the book of Revelation, it talks about how Jesus was giving a revelation to John, but he was doing it through an angel who would then, so it was kind of passed down from, from Jesus to the angel to John, who then passed it down to the churches um, in, in Asia. Well, here we see Daniel receiving those types of visions, very symbolic. And, and with this type of literature, there's often some very, all right, let's face it, we, we would consider there's some very strange things going on in some of these symbols and hard to, sometimes hard uh, to explain. Sometimes, I mean, the, the images are kind of frightening and, and weird, but the thing about the, really the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation is that it, those books weren't written to scare people. Those books weren't written to frighten people, at least not to scare or frighten God's people. You know, the, the, Daniel wasn't written to scare the Jews. Revelation wasn't written to scare the church. In fact, they were written to bring peace and comfort to God's people, to show how, in the end, God and his people win. And so the aim of, and, and really another aim of this type of literature, and I've mentioned this many times before, is that it is showing us and demonstrating to us that no matter how weird the world gets, and boy, the world is pretty weird right now, no matter how weird the world gets, God is in control. God is in control of governments. God is in control of leaders. God is in control of life situations. Anything that, that the saints find themselves in. It could be, doesn't matter what, what sort of government you find yourself in, it could be a republic like the United States, it could be an empire like Babylon. But God wants to tell his people that no matter how wickedness seems to reign, no matter how dark things might seem, he is in control, and he is working everything toward a goal. He is working everything toward an end, a purpose. And we know that that end is the new heaven and new earth, and where, where Christ's kingdom will be consummated.
And so we want to look carefully at the visions that are given in Daniel just because there is so much symbolism there. And we want to slow the pace down a little bit so we can dive into the details as much as possible without getting too boring or too bogged down. And so tonight I want to look at verses 1 through 8 in Daniel chapter 7. And so let's look at verses 1 through 8. It says, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came out, up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then, as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side, it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong, it had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things well that's clear as mud isn't it so here's the first vision uh, that and it happened while belshazzar was king of babylon if you remember in in chapter 5 of daniel belshazzar was the co-regent of babylon with his dad and he was very pagan obviously but he despised god and he despised the Jews, and he despised the Jewish religion. And he demonstrated this by using items from the temple for his, his wild, drunken party. He, he used cups and plates and silverware and whatever uh, from, that was stolen from the Jewish temple to use in this very immoral party that he was having. Well, then... Literally, the handwriting came on the wall. You know, it ta it ta the handwriting came, God sent this, I mean, it was just a hand with like a pen in it or something, to write on the wall to give Belshazzar one final message, that his time was over. He was going to fall that very night. He, they couldn't really understand at first what the message was, so they had to have Daniel come and explain it to him. And sure enough, that night, the Medes and the Persians took over the city of Babylon and Belshazzar was killed. But several years before that incident happened, here's Daniel. 
he's kind of forgotten. Belshazzar didn't really know about, about Daniel until that night. And so Daniel's just living his life, and he's in bed, wondering what in the, maybe wondering what in the world is going to come of his people, seeing as how wicked Belshazzar and the Babylonians had become. And while he was laying in bed, he was given some visions within his dreams. Now, I kind of mentioned this Sunday, I mean, dreams are kind of weird to begin with. I, well, at least my dreams are really weird. If I remember the details of my dreams, I wake up going, what in the world? I mean, it makes no sense. There's like 5,000 different pieces of imagery hitting you that makes no coherent sense. Well, Daniel was shown something that night, which was pretty weird. It might even be under the category of a nightmare. And, uh, you know, he, he definitely didn't want to forget this dream, so he was sure to write it down so then he could pass it on to his people. But how this vision in the dream began is that Daniel was standing by a great sea and four winds were whipping this sea up, causing a whole lot of turmoil and turbulence and, and there was big waves happening and, and things like that. Well, what in the world are four winds? Well, the four, number four often refers to the four corners of the earth. Of course, well, we know that there are no corners of the earth. It's a big globe. But we would, we would liken it to the directions on the compass, north, south, east, and west, the four uh, different directions on the earth. The four winds meant that th there were these winds that were stirring up the sea, and the winds were coming from all directions. There was all this turmoil and all this chaos coming from all the directions. And so that's one part of the symbolism. The other part of the symbolism is the sea. Now, it's called the Great Sea. It's possible because, you know, the vision's given to Daniel, Daniel being a, a Jew, that the Great Sea is often a title that they give to the Mediterranean Sea, and, you know, that which bordered with, with Israel, right? So it's possible that, you know, God is showing Daniel what would happen to the land of Israel, who would, the governments that would be in control of the land of Israel. But oftentimes the sea is, is symbolic of nations. It's, it's symbolic of, well, as one author described it, polluted, turbulent humanity as it tries to exploit and govern in its own wisdom and strength. Uh, the sea is also uh, a symbolism of chaos because, you know, when, when you think of when God first created the universe, it says it was formless and void, and there was darkness over the face of the abyss, the deep, and the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. And so it was like the waters of, of chaos. And yet you'll, you'll notice that when, when the Bible wants to say that God is in control and there's going to be peace, it says that there is no longer going to be any sea. It doesn't mean there isn't going to be any water. It's just saying there's no longer going to be any chaos. And there, you know, with the new heavens and the new earth, there isn't going to be any human government that is going to be causing any sort of chaos. And so here you have the four winds blowing and agitating the sea, meaning there's going to be a lot of political unrest and chaos amongst the nations, especially with, with regard to what's happening in the land of Israel. So 
the peoples of the earth were going to be in a tumult. The nations were going to be in commotion. And out of this commotion, out of this chaos, four beasts rise out of the water in succession, one after another, from, from this sea. Now, what in the world are these beasts? Well, we're told later in the chapter what these beasts are. According to verse 17, these four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. Now, in ancient Near Eastern literature, kings would often stand as a symbol for their kingdoms. And so the beasts represented kingdoms, four kingdoms that would arise or have already risen and, you know, within the ancient Near East, and they would have some sort of influence on what happened in the land of Israel. So here's four great beasts. Now, I want to take a quick pause here, and I want you to put your thinking caps on. Just to think, to, to look at things maybe a little bit differently than we normally do. Now, we, we obviously know that in many ways, Daniel and, Re, and the book of Revelation are related to one another. They are both apocalyptic literature. And Revelation uses sometimes a lot of the symbols that are found in the book of Daniel. Of course, Revelation uses a lot of symbolism from all over the Old Testament. And you really need to search out the Old Testament uh, to see what that symbolism is uh, connected to. But we're all very familiar with Revelation chapter 13, where there are these two beasts that come up. There's a beast that comes out of the sea, and there's a beast that comes from, from the land. We're, we're familiar with the beasts in Revelation 13. Now, some people say that, you know, one of the beasts in Revelation 13 represents the Antichrist, and the other beast represents some sort of prophet of the Antichrist. Well, let's think about this a moment. These are obviously symbols that are pulled directly from Daniel chapter 7. So if the beasts in Daniel chapter 7 represent kingdoms, what do the beasts in Revelation 13 represent? They also represent kingdoms. They represent nations or empires. I don't know, what, however you might want to put it. But we're not studying Revelation, so here's your, here's your little thinking cap. Okay, if the beasts in Revelation 13 are nations, what nations are they? What are the two nations or empires or kingdoms, however we want to put it, that they represent? Well, there's, there's your homework to think about what that means. And, you know, I'm, I'm in, as we go further in Daniel 2, you know, I might try and make little connections here and there to the book of Revelation just because it does use a lot of the same symbols. So Revelation's talking about two different kingdoms. What kingdoms is it talking about? Well, here in Daniel, we're talking about four different kingdoms. And there's these beasts, and they are all different from one, one another, rising up out of this chaotic sea. So there's four beasts representing four kingdoms. You cannot help but make a connection with Daniel chapter 2. When Nebuchadnezzar had his dream, and God gave Daniel the ability to tell the dream and tell the interpretation. And it was a dream about this really big statue this behemoth thing and the statue had four different sections to it and each section represented a different kingdom so you know you would think there would be some sort of connection between the two um, 
And so why, why would God give sort of a, same, a similar vision in a different way? Well, some scholars say, well, if you look at Daniel chapter 2, the vision is given, or the dream, was given to a Gentile king, and it represented how humanity looks at these kingdoms. But in chapter 7, the dream is given to a Jewish prophet, and the beasts represent how God looks at these same kingdoms. To mankind, these empires may look like, you know, like precious metals, but to God, all he sees are savage beasts in these empires. Well, let's look at these beasts. These are weird beasts. You don't, you're not necessarily going to go to the zoo and find these particular beasts, although the first three, it, they, they are likened to some sort of animal. So the first beast in, in verse 4 is described as being like a lion that has eagle's wings. This corresponds to the gold head that's found in the statue of chapter 2, and it represents the Babylonian Empire. And it's actually an appropriate picture because elsewhere in the Old Testament, Nebuchadnezzar is likened to a lion, and sometimes he's likened to an eagle. And it's actually kind of interesting. Archaeologists have found, if you want to call them pictures or imprints or whatever, of winged lions in the ruins around Babylon. But there is a reason for that particular symbolism. The lion was kind of stately, strong, a noble creature. The eagle is known for its grace and cunning and speed. Both were looked upon almost as kings of their respective areas. I mean, the lion is king of the beasts and the eagle is king of the, king of the air, so to speak. And, and so it talk, it, it's showing that this kingdom is going to have a lot of power, a lot of regality to it. And uh, it, it was true, Nebuchadnezzar had more centralized power than any of the succeeding kings ever had. And the Babylonian Empire grew very rapidly under Nebuchadnezzar's rule. As one author stated it, the beast rules royally like the lion and wings its conquering royal flight over the inhabited earth like the eagle. He was, he, he was able to take over a good amount of land. But now this beast... The rest of the symbolism is kind of difficult because it says that the wings are kind of plucked. But it's lifted from the ground and it's given the feet of a man and it's given the mind of a man. Now some, of, some people think this refers to the time when Nebuchadnezzar lost his mind and had the mind of a beast until he finally repented and he was raised back up to a place of honor. Others see this as representing that what was a very ferocious beast at first would cease to be aggressive, would cease to be a conquering power, and would lose much of its influence on the earth. And that's exactly actually what happened after Nebuchadnezzar died. And that's probably, probably the meaning behind that symbol. And so the first beast represents the Babylonian Empire. Most scholars are in agreement with that, but, most, but scholars are in disagreement about what the next three beasts represent. Some scholars believe that they represent the Mede Empire, the Persian Empire, and the Greek Empire. Others believe that they represent the Medo-Persian Empire, the Greco-Macedonian Empire, and then the Roman Empire. I'm thinking because they come in succession one right after the other. You know, the Mede Empire never was really an empire. It just kind of was around during the time of Babylon. It never had any influence over Israel whatsoever. And so it makes more sense 
that these next three beasts represent the Medo-Persian Empire, which took over the Babylonian Empire, then the Greek Empire, the Greco-Macedonian Empire of Alexander, that took over for the Medes and Persians, but, and then the Roman Empire took the whole thing over. And so in verse 5, here's something that looks like a bear. You know, it, it, it's the best way he can describe it. And it symbolizes the Medo-Persian Empire, which is the silver chest and arms, in the statue of chapter 2. It says that this beast was raised up on one side, which could possibly mean that one of the sides of the beast was bigger than the other, representing that, you know, there, there was kind of a lopsidedness in the partnership between the Medes and the Persians. But it also could mean that one side of the beast was just kind of reared up. The paw was up, and it was ready to swipe at anything. It was ready to attack. It was ready to take a step in, to further conquer some land. It says that it has three ribs in its mouth, showing that it's devouring the nations. The number three is pretty specific. It might mean three different directions as opposed to four, but it might represent three major empires that the Medo-Persians kind of took over to consolidate their power. The Lydian kingdom, the Babylonian empire, and Egypt is a possibility. But it says that God tells this beast to devour much flesh. And the Medo-Persian Empire took over actually more area than the Babylonian Empire ever had. Then in verse 6, it describes a third beast. It's said to be like a leopard. But, you know, it's not a regular leopard because this leopard had four wings on it and it had four heads. I mean, you think about that. A leopard's a pretty fast animal in and of itself. And you add four wings to that thing, boy, that's going to be super quick, super fast. And so it might mean that this beast covered all the directions more swiftly than any empire before it. Now the beast represents the same kingdom as the middle section of bronze in the statue in chapter 2. So it's talking about the Greco-Macedonian Empire, the Greek Empire. And it's really a very good description of what actually happened with the Greek Empire. Because Alexander the Great was such a tactician he was able to conquer the area between the Mediterranean Sea and India, what we would call India now, in about 10 to 12 years. It, it, he covered such a large area in such a short amount of time compared to the rest of the empires. And now legend says, you know, this is just legend, how legends grow amongst people like Alexander. Legends say that after he conquered the last area in that, you know, kind of, uh, you know, the last part of land in that area there. It says that he cried because he didn't think there was any more land to conquer. He thought he conquered it all. And he wanted to conquer more, but there was no more. Well, I don't know if that's true or not, but he, he conquered a lot of places. And very quickly, and he did it with a smaller army than the other empires had. You know, a leopard is smaller than a bear. Well, the, Alexander's army was smaller than the Medo-Persian Empire. It's just that they were so quick that uh, they were able to conquer the territories that way. Well, the, the beast is described as having four heads. Now, heads, used in symbolism, are, is usually symbolic of rulers or governments. And this might be prophesying what would happen to Alexander's government because Alexander died when he was very young 
in the year 323 or three, yeah, 323 BC, and he was 32 years old when he died. And after his death, there was no immediate successor. I guess he didn't have any children. So four of his generals kind of jockeyed for control of the empire. And what ended up happening is that the empire was split into four different sections. So one, uh, one general, Antipater, he can gain control of Greece and Macedonia. Another general, Lysimachus, he ruled Thrace and part of Asia Minor. Uh, another general, Seleucus Nicator, he governed Syria, Babylon, and Middle, the Middle East. And then the fourth general, Ptolemy Soter, he controlled Egypt and Palestine for a time. But actually, if you read the history of, of Israel, during that time, there was this constant war between the Seleucids and the Ptolemies over Israel. They kept going back and forth over who would control that area. And actually, what's interesting is what we'll get into is that there are future uh, visions that are given to Daniel that give even more detail about what would happen with those two empires. But then there's the fourth beast. Verses 7 and 8 describe what is literally a different beast. I mean, this beast is so different than anything else. There's not even an animal that it's likened to. I mean, there is no animal that looks like this beast, whatever it was. You know, it, it may have looked like one of the monsters from one of them King Kong or Godzilla movies or whatever. Who knows? You know, there, it, um, it was just so weird. It was terrible. It was dreadful. It was strong. It had teeth of iron. And if you remember in, the four, the, in chapter 2, the fourth section, the, the legs and the feet, they were made of iron, representing the Roman Empire. Rome, the, the Roman Empire was different than the other empires. I mean, it did have an emperor, but it also had a republican civic form of government. And so it was a little bit different than the other empires. But it was strong. And it devoured everything in its way. And it grew. And, you know, just like iron, it just crushed things. You know, it talks about how what it, whatever, whatever it didn't devour, and it would just stamp and it would just crush with its feet. That is an apt description of the Roman Empire. It says that the beast had ten horns. Those horns will be uh, interpreted a little bit later as kings. And then there's this, amongst these kings, there was a little horn that ro rose up. And, you know, we'll discuss that a little bit later because it's discussed a little bit later in um, the chapter. But just kind of to wet our whistle what that possibly means, I mean, there's, there's all sorts of different interpretations. Some scholars think that the number 10 is symbolic, meaning a completeness. Maybe meaning that the rest of human government kind of comes forth from that, that beast. Some believe that it represents a 10-kingdom coalition that rises from the former Roman Empire, the little horn being the Antichrist, who then uproots three of the kingdoms on his way to power because maybe they rebelled against him. Some see that these symbolize Roman emperors, with Nero being the little horn, seeing as he somewhat played a part in getting rid of the prior three emperors. Still, others see that the horns represent the various emperors, the Caesars, beginning with Julius Caesar, and the little horn is actually the 10th Caesar, Vespasian, because he was the emperor when Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD. 
And what happened is that the three Caesars prior to Vespasian all died in the year 69. One by suicide and two, their troops killed him. So that's kind of how he made his way uh, for his rule. And so, again, here's a little homework. You can do a little studying on that as well. Um, I, the, in, in reading this, and here, here's the wonderful thing about eschatology and end times and things like that. We can have some fun, fun discussion about what all these things mean. But, you know, we don't have to yeah, hate the premillennials, don't have to hate the amillennials, and the amillennials don't have to hate the postmillennials, and, you know, we're, we just have fun in that discussion. We all agree Jesus Christ is coming back. He's coming back bodily, visibly, physically. He is going to set up his kingdom in the end. How we get there, hey, let's have fun studying it. Now, for me, Daniel 7 actually doesn't have anything to do with the end times. Um, because it is, you, you don't see anything indicating a break in between the beasts. Um, this has to do with the kingdoms that have power over Israel up until the kingdom of the Messiah comes. Because here's what we'll look at next week. We see a vision of heaven. And we see the Ancient of Days. And then we see one who is like the Son of Man, who is given all power, all authority. Obviously, that's Christ. And it's referring to his death, burial, and resurrection when he brought the kingdom. Remember when, when Jesus first began to teach and preach, when he first began his earthly ministry, what was his, what was his sermon? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of God is, is here. And so he ushered in that kingdom of God. And it's just like the vision in chapter 2. Because at, during the time of the iron legs, during the time of the Roman Empire, it says that a stone that was not made cut out by man came and shattered that statue and it and the stone grew and grew and grew until it became a mountain that covered the entire earth a picture of Christ coming and his kingdom expanding and it's going to continue to expand until he returns and we're part of that we want we are a part of that but here is just the, the wonderful truths that these visions tell us. It doesn't, in the end, it doesn't matter who the government is. It doesn't matter if it's the most benevolent person in the world or the cruelest dictator in the world. It doesn't matter who's voted in. doesn't matter who's voted out. In the end, Christ still reigns. There is no earthly power that can overcome that. There is no earthly power that can conquer or subdue the kingdom of God. Right now, the kingdom of God is internal. It's in the hearts of men and women who believe 
in Jesus Christ. And Jesus is reigning. He is seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven, in the place of authority and power. And there's no one who can kick him off. Christ is not coming off that throne until he returns and then sets up the eternal throne, so to speak, and the kingdom is consummated. And so whatever chaos is being whipped up in this world, the four winds are just tossing the sea. What an apt description of our day and age. Tumult, chaos, turbulence, and yet we are consoled that Jesus is in control. Yeah, the four winds are stirring up trouble, but the four winds will not blow the king off his throne. Jesus reigns, and he reigns forever and ever. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Harvest Baptist Church. For more information, visit us online at harvest-baptist.org or find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. You can also find info on our children's ministry on Facebook at Harvest Baptist Children's Ministry or on Instagram at KidsQuest underscore HBC. Our student ministries on Facebook at HBC Vertical Student Ministry and on Instagram at VSM underscore HBC. We welcome you to join us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. We are located at 8999 Waltrana Highway in Harvest, Alabama. Thanks for listening and God bless.